Hello and welcome to Unauthorized Disclosure. Today is Sunday, April 19th, and I am your host, Rania Kalik, here with your other host, Kevin Gastola. Hello, Kevin. Hey. Uh, Kevin and I uh, have an interview to play for you. Um, I did the interview this time. Kevin was not with me, but it's a really important interview with a 24-year-old writer from Gaza who is in the United States right now um, with people that uh, contributed to a book called Gaza Writes Back. Uh, They're on a book tour, and um, his name is Yusuf Al-Jamal, and he is um, really, really smart, a really brilliant writer. um, And I'm really excited for you to hear the interview because it's very rare that we get to hear from somebody who uh, lives in Gaza because it's uh, under siege by Israel uh, and Egypt, um, and, you know, Israel counts the calories that go into Gaza. Uh, I mean, it's basically like an open air prison. So yeah, it's not, it's not easy to connect with people who live there. Um, so we're going to play the interview for you, for you, and then we'll, we'll be back for, uh, with the discussion. All right. So you're in DC right now as a part of, uh, a book, the book tour for Gaza Writes Back. Um, so can you tell me about the book? Well, the Gaza Iceberg is a collection of 23 stories written by 15 young Palestinians from Gaza, Palestine, about occupation, life in Gaza, daily life in Gaza, struggles, uh, society, politics, love, hope, and everything in between. And how old are you? I'm 24. 24. And the book was inspired, uh, or all these essays were inspired by, by Operation Castled, right? Right. Soon after the Castled operation, the editor of the book, who was my teacher, and who taught almost every single writer, uh, either at the university where he teaches, the Islamic University of Gaza, or other at, uh, at other institutions, uh, creative writing, and he encouraged them to write about their reaction to Castled Operation 2008 and 2009. So students started writing. Uh, I wrote a story about my oldest brother who was killed by Israel. Other students wrote about, like Rawania, he wrote about uh, stories of children, uh, a child stuck under the rubble of the, the destroyed house. And other students wrote about Israeli soldiers. They tried to get into the, the psyche of Israeli soldiers. Uh, others wrote about Jerusalem and, and the West Bank and the wall. So the stories are from Gaza, but they tell uh, the, the story of Palestine from the river to the sea. And... Um your brother, your older brother, you said, was killed in Castlet? Or, no. Oh. My, my, my oldest brother was killed in 2004 when Israel invaded the Nusayrat refugee camp in March, on, on March the 7th. Uh, but I decided to write later on because I was a little kid by then. And I wanted to document the, the personal experience of my family under incubation. I wrote about my oldest brother who was shot by Israel. I wrote about my oldest sister who was denied a permit by Israel to receive medical attention in the West Bank and passed away as a result. And that was in Gaza? That was before Castle with the siege, right? Right, this was in 2007. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wrote about other issues. Uh, for example, I, I, 
I lost my cousin custody operation and he was found under the rubble of one of the buildings with his head cut off uh, I wrote about travel restrictions and how it took my mother 12 years to get a permit to visit her hometown and the West Bank, in West Bank. Uh, and how her parents passed away in 2003 and 2008 and she was denied permit to participate in the funeral procession in Jericho which is just two hours drive away from our refugee camp uh, I'm still writing but I focus on the personal experience of people is writing, is writing like a form of resistance for you? Right. Uh, it's okay. resistance and it's education and it's therapy. Uh, hopefully it will bring about change for those who read and learn about the, the situation in Palestine. Where is your family originally from? My family is originally from Aqar village. Where's that? Uh, Aqar is to the south of Ramle. Mm-hmm. Just to the middle of, of, of the coast of Palestine, next to Jaffa. Mm. And the village was ethnically cleansed in 1948, and nowadays there is a, an Israeli colony there called Kiryat Ekron. And you've never, I mean, you can't go back and visit there, obviously. Like, 80% of the people in Gaza are refugees right. from the I cannot visit, I cannot go back to this village. I, I even cannot go back to the other side of Palestine, the West Bank, where my, my mother was born. Now, um, in the U.S., um, there, I'm sure you're aware, there's been you know several high-profile academic organizations in the past several months who've come out in support of the academic and cultural boycott of Israel. Um, and a lot of Zionists, what they say is that this is a violation of, of the academic freedom of Israelis. So you, as a, as a scholar, a student and a scholar, um, can you talk about what kind of academic freedom you have or don't have in Gaza? Palestinian students are denied the basic human rights. For example, I cannot study in the West Bank universities, and Palestinians in the West Bank cannot study in, in Gaza universities because Israel... Israel's policy is to divide, to split Gaza from the West Bank. Uh, students in the West Bank have to go through checkpoints, unlimited number of checkpoints, when they go to their schools every day, and they get humiliated. And sometimes Israel sends them back, and sometimes they do not you know, arrive on time, and they miss their classes. And in 2008-2009, Israel destroyed one of the main buildings in my university, the Islamic University of Gaza. Uh, and they destroyed dozens of schools and killed hundreds of Palestinian uh, students. And hundreds of Palestinian students are uh, arrested by Israel. Israel also destroyed the International American School in Gaza in 2008 and 2009. So academic boycott of Israel, cultural boycott of Israel, economic boycott of Israel, political boycott of, of Israel is extremely important to bring Israel accountable and force it to uh, give Palestinians equal rights in historical Palestine. Um, and in terms of Castled, Operation Castled, uh, which killed like what fourteen hundred people right. uh, and three hundred were children, over three hundred were children. Um, now, obviously, you know there was life before Castled, and how, how have things changed for you personally since that military operation? Probably this was the the largest military operation I have witnessed in my life. I was 
preparing to sit for my final exams and all of a sudden hell broke out in, in, in Gaza almost 60 F-16s uh, attacked governmental buildings, police stations some facilities here and there at the same time when students were getting out of their schools, we have two shifts in Gaza so some students were getting were going to their schools and some students were leaving their schools the intensity of attacks, the number of people killed, the you know seeing all this horrible massacres, losing friends, relatives, neighbors, having to be there under attacks and waiting to what may happen next. You might be the next target was really a horrible experience but again as Palestinians we never give up and this is our right for example my, my cousin back in November 2012 when Israel attacked again he was in Egypt but he chose to come to Gaza to stay with his family under attacks we seek life but when it comes to uh, challenge uh, incubation we are ready to be there and fight until the, the very end with the very little, little support and hope we have. Um, now, after, after Castled and since then, there's been, um, there's been, you know, other big assaults, little assaults military-wise, but also there's, you know, there's a fuel crisis in Gaza, right, where Israel won't let fuel in and Egypt is helping. Egypt won't let, you know, fuel in. And there's other things, too, like there's, you know, shortages of medical supplies. How are, how is it, I mean, can you talk a little bit about those things and, and what it's like to, to live in a place where you can't access basic, basic things like that? In 2007, my oldest sister passed away because of uh, the lack of medical equipment. In the Your Gaza older sister? Strip. Yes, she was denied a permit by Israel. She applied to go to Jerusalem. Uh, for surgery. For surgery. And she was denied a permit. Why, what, a what did they de- why did they deny it? What did they say? Uh, security threat. And this was the same reason given to my seven-year-old sister when my mother applied to, to travel to the West Bank. Uh, so the siege makes it very difficult. Lack of medical equipment, uh, lack of food, lack of uh, gas. There is a gas crisis, fuel crisis. Uh, I, I still remember when I left Gaza six months ago, uh, I used to spend sometimes an hour waiting for a taxi to go to my office. Wow. And imagine thousands of Palestinian students do the same. Uh, and there's no electricity either. Well, right? this is another issue. In 2006, Israel attacked the only power plant in the, the Gaza Strip, which is located just two kilometers less than two kilometers away from my parents' house in Nusayrat refugee camp. And since then, we have been suffering. And sometimes we have eight hours of electricity shortage, sometimes 12 hours, sometimes 16 hours. And this is terrible to students, this is terrible to everyone, to social life, to economy. Even sometimes uh, patients die in hospitals because there is also... There is no fuel, and they cannot run the generators. Uh, so 
the situation in Gaza is terrible. People always look for alternatives mm -hmm. and do their best to survive. Uh, we have almost 1,500 tunnels dug between Gaza and Egypt, and they were used mainly to smuggle food and uh, raw materials to the Gaza Strip after long years of, of, of Israeli siege. But sadly, uh, these tunnels, most of these tunnels were, were destroyed by the Egyptian military. Recently, right? Recently, yeah. yeah. Just last year. Uh, it is sad that Palestinians depend on tunnels to get access to their basic human rights. But again, this is the only option. And it's the responsibility of uh, all people all over the world and all governments to end this cruel siege. Okay, so I also wanted to ask you about a little bit more about um, sort of the political situation in Gaza. Uh, with Egypt right now, I mean, it's really, it's, things are really rough because they closed, like you said, they, they destroyed the tunnels. Um, and inside Gaza, I mean, people, I don't necessarily, I don't agree with this opinion, but, you know, people, people who are, um, people who are pro-Israel, Zionists say that, well, they elected Hamas and Hamas is a terrorist organization. And you actually just showed me that I saw the title of that, you know, you had your first academic article published um, and the title was about Hamas specifically. Is it a terrorist organization or a, liber a liberation? I think that's what it said, right? Right. So can you talk a little bit about that, what that means? Like what, I mean, should the people of Gaza have a right to resist? Don't they have a right to resist? Even if that means a violent resistance? According to the UN uh, resolutions, all people who are uh, subjected to military occupation have the right to resist the occupation by all possible means, uh, by all means possible, including uh, what's so-called violent resistance, so resistance with its uh, forms. Uh, Israel used to call Yasser Arafat a terrorist, and later... Uh, we have seen Yasser Arafat coming to the United States and signing peace pact, peace agreement with Israel. Uh, Israel have always has always accused Palestinians of being terrorists. Even in the 50s, those Palestinian refugees who were trying to go back to their original villages, they were killed, captured, and they were killed. Uh, they, they were called infiltrators and terrorists by then. And now again, and the same story happens with, with Hamas. The U.S. Uh, designed Hamas as a terrorist organization, and so does Israel. And we have seen that Israel uh, had to talk to Hamas to release its uh, captured uh, soldier in Gaza, and they had to talk to Hamas indirectly through Egypt to, to reach uh, an agreement. So Israel labels any Palestinian terrorist just because he's calling for his rights. And the United States, Jimmy Carter was in, in Gaza and the West Bank, and uh, he has said that you know the 2006 elections were, were more than perfect, and Hamas was elected, and this is democracy. 
And according to democracy, we should accept the results of democracy. If we want to change um, the elected leadership, we have to wait four years. Uh, and the only way to do this is elections, not supporting uh, militias and giving them weapons to topple the government, as the U.S. and, and Israel did. Um, in terms of I mean, people who are listening to this, what who want to help but don't know how, how can how can people help Gaza? Like people outside, how can people outside of Gaza help? Well, nowadays we have seen the growing boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel. I think this is the best way to help Palestinians. We are calling for equal rights for all people, Muslims, Christians, and Jews. And I don't think that anyone here in the state has a problem with equal rights. The problem is that we have uh, some Israeli leaders who have a problem with equal rights. They don't want to give Palestinians equal rights. In Gaza, we have different ID, West Bank, different ID, segregated cities, towns, and Palestinians in Israel who have Israeli passport are treated as second-class uh, citizens. Even some Jewish groups in Israel uh, are being discriminated against. So the only way is to give equal rights to all people and to allow Palestinian refugees uh, to go back to their homes. And otherwise, uh, the agreement, the conflict will not come to an end. As a Palestinian refugee, I live in a refugee camp, uh, which is a, a home for 85,000 Palestinians. Oh, one and we have eight refugee camps in the Gaza Strip. Palestinian refugees will never give up their right to return. And if they talk about being practical, this is the best way to solve the conflict. Give equal rights to all and allow Palestinian refugees to go back to their homes. What do you when you see the when you see the U.S. and Israel talking about you know the peace process and the two-state solution and what is your response with this constant endless peace uh, process? Kerry accused Israel and Netanyahu and blamed him for the, the collapse of peace talks. But as a Palestinian, this doesn't mean anything to me. This means that Israel will continue land confiscation in the West Bank and building more settlements and killing more Palestinians and erecting more checkpoints. So the peace process is used by Israel to further advance its colonial project and land confiscation and house demolitions and killings, air strikes, just two days ago, uh, the day before yesterday, Israel was targeting the Gaza Strip. Yeah, they hit a washing machine factory. Right, so... Very dangerous place. Again, this is the only way to, to get out of this uh, endless saga of, of violence in the occupation. Do you feel um, hopeful? Yes, of course. Uh, when I see people coming to, to support Palestine and I see many non-Palestinians involved in this uh, justice battle here in the U.S. and elsewhere in the world, uh, I feel more hopeful. And I always had hope that our day will come, as our Irish uh, friends say. <laughs> oh, and I guess, one, lastly, I just I want to ask... Um, have you received any media attention, like from um, big U.S. publications? 
have you spoken to people? So like, have any reporters from you know the Washington Post or the New York Times or the Los have, Angeles yeah, have well, spoken to? Yeah, we have talking to the Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, we have talking to Real News, Huffington Post. The problem is that you know mainstream media in the U.S. is controlled by this Zionist narrative that doesn't allow Palestinian voices to get there. But I think with the rise of social media and alternative media, uh, this narrative is being debunked uh, every day, and more Palestinian voices get out. And this book, Gaza Rights Back, is just an example. This is Kevin Gastola. We're going to start the discussion portion. I'm joined by the other host, Rania Kalek. Hello. Yo. Hey. Uh, so that was a really good interview, and I think now we're ready to plunge into some of the stories that we want to discuss. And I guess, what should we begin with? Let's start with the Bundy Ranch. Okay. So... This has been a big story for uh, mostly the right wing, and then because the right wing was so excited and, I guess, inspired by this old cattle rancher taking on the federal government, was how they sort of put it, uh, then it slowly grew into this thing where you had more people who were liberals responding, and I guess... what, what. what uh, do you have to say about all of this? Yeah, so Bundy Ranch. If anyone's not familiar, uh, because they don't watch Fox News, um, it was this guy who owns a ranch, uh, got really mad because, like, the federal government uh, was going to start enforcing um, their own laws. Uh, he was basically letting his cattle, like, roam on public land, Um and uh or graze on public land and it was and he he was doing it like illegally without paying the fees for it for like what like two decades or something he he owes like a million dollars yeah and then i mean it's not just the money i mean also like it was destroying the land it was like uh you know uh it was bad for um one of like for the tortoise species uh it was apparently destroying like native american uh ancient uh, cultural sites. I mean, all kinds of reasons. But basically, like the the Bureau of Land or something. What I don't even know what the Bureau of Land Management. There you go. I didn't even know that existed. But it's like an it's like an enforcement a federal government agency. Like uh, started confiscating the cattle, um, and say like saying basically like you have to start paying the fees. Like you can't do this for free. You can't just like graze on this public land. And this guy, Cliven, Cliven. Cliven is his name. Cliven Bundy, um, being the self-righteous white man that he is, was like through a hissy fit and was like, no, this is my family's land. It goes back a hundred years. Like I don't have to pay the federal government. Uh, if I'm going to pay anybody, it's going to be the state government. I mean, just like this really bizarre. His Mormon ancestors. Yeah. Right. Like this really, really bizarre sort of uh, argument that actually like, Kind of sounds cool if you're, like, a Native American and you can, like, say, yeah, this belongs to me, this land. But, like, it was just really hilarious because, uh, like, it's, like, all the the right-wing media started hyping it up. And then all of a sudden these militia, these, like, white nationalists and, like, like, patriot group militias, like, started flocking to this ranch uh, to defend this, this, this family from you know, the crazy feds. Um, and it was insane. I mean, it like really like Sean Hannity was talking about it nonstop. And like, 
the right-wing media was playing it up to the point where I think that, that at some point they were kind of like inspiring uh, the militias to like be to like go and join in over there. So there was like, yeah, there was like people armed, like snipers armed, uh, you know, pointing their weapons at police. And the craziest part was like, not that I want some big showdown, but like the police backed down. Like they backed down. They were like, all right. And they left and that was it. And like, it was just like, holy shit. So like, if you're white, uh, and like every, and you think everything belongs to you and you know, you get a bunch of armed white people with really violent ideologies to come defend you against, you know, the federal government, the federal authorities, like it's all good. <laughs> no problem. Like, could you imagine if like a group of people in Chicago, <laughs> like on the South side of Chicago were to be like, hell no, you can't evict me. And like a bunch of black people from the area were to like, were to like, you know, flock to whatever house is about to be evicted to defend the family with weapons. Like, could you imagine the police response? What it would be? Or can you imagine a group of Occupy protesters back in 2011 deciding that they were not going to let their free speech rights be violated and they were going to take a stand and they occupied a park yeah, like a and, piece of cement for like longer than Bloomberg would have liked. This yeah. guy like was occupying public land with his freaking cows. It's like, yeah, that's a great. It's like, I didn't see anybody get tear gas. Not that I want people to get tear gas, but it just really amazes me. Like what right wing armed white individuals when they come together can get away with in this country. Yeah. So he's a nut, but yeah. I do want to say, that I feel that the Bureau of Land Management somehow seriously botched this, and I have no idea what's going to happen next. Um, they're they're hyping this thing. There's going to be some like horrific raid, and people are going to like violently die as the feds come down on everyone at the ranch. And I don't know if that's going to really happen, but uh, I, I will say that it, it's sort of stunning because. If this person is really doing something that's criminal and, 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 and derelict, why weren't they arrested? And, and why, why weren't these people taken out of the equation so that the cattle could be removed? It's something that I don't understand because it seems like in order to clear—well, let's just take Occupy as an example. In order to clear Zuccotti Park, a lot of people who were in the way and didn't move were just arrested, right? They just uh, took you off and— booked you in jail overnight or yeah, there was like 800 people arrested on the Brooklyn bridge that one time for like protesting yeah. as a yeah. occupy. Yeah. So here, um, uh, I don't think these people were like, they weren't illegally anywhere, but they were obstructing, um, a, a federal, uh, process or, or an operation that was ongoing. And, and, uh, Bureau of Land Management had a security contractor hired because they were afraid of, of what would happen to them. And, um, they had armed forces out there. I think there were armed agents. And that's also something that I think uh, that uh, maybe they could have calculated differently. It certainly, you know, Bundy was crazy and was like, there's going to be a range war. And I mean, I, I have to do, I do have to admit that I was of the opinion that if you show up with a bunch of armed agents, uh, 
it probably shouldn't be a, a surprise to you to learn that these people are going to then respond uh, with their right wing militias, not to endorse that. No, sure. Uh, and you know, I and, and to be clear, like I'm not siding with the police or the the authorities here. I mean, like there and there is good reason to like fear uh, a crazy response from federal authorities. I mean, you know, just you know, look no further than Waco. Uh, what happened at Waco and, you know, how, and then that actually inspired, you know, Timothy McVeigh. Is that what his name was? Timothy McVeigh. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's why I just am raising the issue of it being handled appropriately and effectively and and why why it took so long. Like, I mean, you and I were talking about this like a week and a half later, this thing was just sort of bubbling and, and brewing and nobody was paying any attention for the longest time. And then we started to see these scenes because I think of Fox News getting involved and, and some of the, the right-wing politicians and that gradually that made it interesting to people. Well, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's that, that, that was the issue here with the story is like, again, like not, not, you know, my, my instinct is always to question the authorities, but it's just my, you know, my sort of, my interest in this story is just the, the way that, um, the, just the fact that, that right-wing militia groups can get away with this. And I mean, if you like, if that was, you know, a a group of Muslims, (laughs) like, could you imagine what the response might be? Like, it's just, it's interesting to look at it in that respect. And also just to hear, the right suddenly championing the championing the idea, especially like the Fox News pundits and um, championing champ, becoming champions of like private property rights suddenly, uh, or come, becoming champions of oh this is his ancestral land. It's like I've never heard you say the same thing about um, about Native Americans like ever. Uh, in fact, I'm pretty sure you don't know any Native Americans because you don't think they exist. Um, yeah. And on top of that, it's also bizarre to hear them claim like they care about these private property rights of ranchers when like when it comes to the Keystone XL pipeline and them taking farmers land like using um, eminent domain and that's something that also like companies like Monsanto do I mean you never see them come to the aid of people like this ever um, or with fracking companies like that's something that fracking companies do all the time uh, is they like use eminent domain to basically you know pollute people's lands to you know put in their stupid fracking uh equipment in the ground and pollute everyone's water and like people don't get a say and there also are ranchers worth supporting apparently the aclu has talked to ranchers down on the u.s mexico border who complain about the government and so i guess the right wing could be on the side of these people who are upset that the border patrol continue to go through their land at will cut through fences and then even sometimes run over their own cattle. So if they really want to defend the land, uh, maybe they could get down there and take a stand against the border patrol. Yeah, no, that's true. And there, there is like a, an actual, na- I believe there's like a native town, a Native American town, like uh-huh. uh, that split along the border of Arizona. I don't remember the name of it, uh, but it's and it's it's split to the point where like it kind of reminds me of Israel Palestine because it's kind of split in a way where like it splits the town, and so people are separated from each other. Um, and from their land. So yeah, it's like, no, I don't see anybody going wild about that. So that's, I mean, sort of just the hypocrisy there is really interesting. But speaking of crazy right-wingers, um, can we talk about this guy who shot up a, a, a like a Jewish community center uh, yeah. on Sunday and yeah. like no one's talking about it anymore? Uh, like a white nationalist who was like, Heil Hitler! And like, you know, just wanted to kill the Jews. Um and, you know, it wasn't described as terrorism. 
it, so yeah, what do you think about that? <laughs> no, I do think it's amazing because you've had uh, like the shooter at the Holocaust Museum. Uh, that was another instance where you probably could have made the argument that you know if, if we're going to call these things terrorism when someone does shoot and and I, I put it like that because I don't necessarily know that I would call shooting terrorism is terrorism is a very politically charged word but it certainly seems to me that whenever you have a brown person who goes around shooting and especially if they're people like uh, like Nid al Malik Hassan the big thing on, on Fort Hood was whether you would call that terrorism. And that's a huge debate. And actually, I don't think it's even resolved. There's still... Well, the, one of the parts of that debate, though, was also the fact that it was he was doing it on a military base. Right. So they were like, yeah. well, wait, if it's a military base, he wasn't attacking civilians, technically. Not that I'd make the argument that what he did was, like, you know, in any way, um, sure. in any way acceptable. It was, certainly was not. Uh, but, but anyway... But terrorism is very charged is just the point yeah. i'm trying to make because it, it can just be shooting and just be a violent uh, uh attack that obviously is, is wrong and uh not to be condoned in any way and i think that it's interesting in in this case just uh i mean i don't know maybe i'm jumping ahead here in our discussion but for me by far the biggest issue coming out of the shooting was some of the people who we're now having to deal with the fact that their name had appeared in a forum and maybe they were somehow connected to this person. Uh, you're, you, you'll talk about Max, but I know that a Abby Martin, the host of Breaking the Set on RT, also had this malicious attack against her where uh, she was. They, they were trying to associate her as, as somehow inspiring this shooter. Yeah, so um, what happened is that, okay, the shooter whose name is Glenn, Fraser Glenn Miller, also known as Fraser Glenn Cross. I'm not sure which one's his actual name, but seems to be like being used interchangeably. But let's go with Fraser, let's go with Glenn Miller. That's what I'm going to call him because Fraser is not easy for me to say for some reason. Um, <laughs> so Glenn Miller has like a history of, he's like a white nationalist. He used to be a KKK, a leader of some branch of the KKK that he started. The word dragon is in there somewhere. Like, he was like, literally, I mean, this guy has like a history of being involved in, I mean, like at one point he was involved in an assassination, a attempt to assassinate like the, the head of the um, Southern Poverty Law Center, which is a organization that tracks hate groups. Um, and this guy is like, he was like 73 or something, like very long history, wrote a book like about, you know, how, uh, wrote a book about something about white people. Um, I can't remember the name of it. I'm like blanking out on that. But I mean, he wrote a book where he basically lays out like it's all about just hating Jews. I mean, it's like this, he's very, you know, white nationalists and white supremacists have uh, all kinds of people they hate. But this guy's particular focus was Jews. That was like his thing. He hated the Jews. Um, and I mean, every bad, every awful stereotype and anti-Semitic like um, and, and historically anti-Semitic, like, thing you can think about Jews, like, he thought and wrote about constantly. So this was, like, his obsession. And so he uh, he had this forum that he constantly posted on. Um, it wasn't his forum, but it was, like, a forum that he posted on, like, thousands of times uh, called, like, the Vanguard News Network. Um, and... Uh, over there, it's like basically the whole thing, the whole website is devoted against it's, it hates Jews. I mean, I think the tagline is something kind of like uh, disturbingly hilarious. What is the tagline? I have to like find it now because it's kind of funny. Um, but anyway, so um, 
he posted at this website, like on these forums a lot. And in, in like, in like one of his posts, he spoke about the journalist Max Blumenthal, uh, admirably, uh, or, or like he basically not admirably, but he basically like said he liked his work on something. It was like something he had done about the Israel lobby. Um, and of course, like anti-Semites, like, you know, they're like, Oh, Jews control everything. So when they hear the Israel lobby, they're like, yeah, it's the Jewish, they call it the Jewish lobby, not even the Israel lobby. And like, and so that's their thing. So it's not surprising that this guy would do this. Uh, have this post where he says something like calling Max like a, a funny, you know, I think he called him Jew journalist Max Blumenthal, um, which obviously is a, is a compliment, right? Uh, <laughs> it sounds like it. Right? So, um, and also, like, he, not by this guy, but on this forum, like, everyone's name is mentioned. I mean, like, there's, like, right-wing hardcore Zionists who are mentioned on this forum and at some points are praised for their like sort of supremacist beliefs. Um, but anyway, so the right wing, so right wing Zionists figured out that Max had been like appeared in a post by this guy. Uh, and they went nuts and were like, Max inspired the, the, the Kansas killer. Max inspired the anti-Semite. I mean, just like ridiculous headlines from the most notorious, like notoriously right wing, discredited outlets like front page magazine, which I believe David Horowitz, it's like his magazine. Um, but yeah, it's like magazines like that just had these ridiculous headlines, like, you know, like leftist, leftist, uh, anti-Semite Max Blumenthal inspires Kansas shooter to kill Jews, like just crazy shit. Right. Um, and so it's like, but it starts to become like insane because even though it's just like, and then, you know, Pam Geller, Pamela Geller and, you know, Daniel Pipes weigh in and they're really excited because, uh, back during the whole Anders Breivik thing in, uh, the Netherlands, when, uh, the right winger white supremacist shot all those like people, those like liberals at a camp, like a Mm -hmm. youth camp, uh, he had, he posted a manifesto, uh, where he went on and on about how he was like inspired by the, by the Islamophobia of Pamela Geller and, and, and Daniel Pipes. And, and like, they were, you know, repeatedly cited in his manifesto. Um, so, he, so people were like, Oh, Max went after this guy, but look at him. He's inspiring anti-Semites. Right. Uh, but yeah, this like, we got really ridiculous. My name appeared in this forum as well, only because I co-wrote an article with Max uh, about, uh, the neocon, uh, you know, the neocons and the whole Liz wall resigning situation, mm-hmm. uh, and them sort of coordinating, uh, or helping, you know, cooperating with that. And so my name appeared in there well, or as well, like in, you know, that article we wrote was like praised because again, like anti-Semites, anything that, you know, they see neocons and they're like, ah, oh, neocons are Jews and they get really excited. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so basically people start saying that Max inspired this. I mean, it got ridiculous. It's not, you know, I'm, I'm surprised his name wasn't like trending on Twitter, uh, because it was like outrageous. I mean, it was just one, like every, every minute, like five, like just dozens of tweets a minute, just being like Max Blumenthal, anti-Semite inspires Casey, you know, inspires Kansas killer. Uh, so it was just like a ridiculous smear. And what really upset me is Rush Limbaugh, Rush Limbaugh on his show, starts like uh starts starts talking about this and 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 you know takes one of these right-wing articles on this and starts you know starts repeatedly saying you know Max Blumenthal inspired this guy and that like democrat Max Blumenthal and they start trying to call this guy a democrat too which is really weird the guy that did it which is really bizarre <laughs> uh but they were like and, and then they you know Rush Limbaugh being Rush Limbaugh and caring only about like you know uh 
crapping on Democrats was like, oh, and like Blumenthal's father used to worked with the Clinton administration. So really Hillary Clinton is connected and inspiring this man. Uh, so yeah, just like this ridiculous like smear that you would expect from Rush Limbaugh. But here's what really upset me. And I'm pretty sure Max was pretty pissed about this too. I would have been. Was that like when Rush Limbaugh smears you as a lefty journalist, like the left, the liberal establishment left is supposed to like defend you. That's how it works. Like it just, I mean, it's like the, you know, Sandra Fluke, for example, comes to mind. But, you know, like that's how it works. Like Media Matters is supposed to be like the first to like come out and be like Rush Limbaugh's crazy and here's why. But no one said anything. Not a word from like any liberals, even from like progressive outlets, like not a word. And it was really disturbing because this was a really nasty smear that like borderline, I mean, I think it, you know, it's, it's pretty close to incitement when you've got the right wing being like this guy uh, inspired, you know, inspired uh, a white supremacist uh, nationalist to kill Jews. Like, and what's really upsetting too is that like it was like the the, the right wing knee jerk Zionists who like are the first people to defend Israel and like be really racist in their defense of Israel because they're I mean they're defending a racist uh, a racist country uh, that you know it, but my point is is that like it's it's just really interesting because it's like instead of going after actual anti Semites you've got these these hardcore right wing Zionists going after anti racists. And then you've got the left not saying anything to, like, defend their own people. So, like, that was just, that whole thing was really upsetting. And then at one point, it just got insane because Haaretz, like, the very, you know, widely respected um, liberal uh, Israeli paper, uh, decided to recycle this smear, uh, literally, like, quoting word for word from the right-wing outlet, Washington Free Beacon, uh, in a post, like, that you know, was exactly the same thing. Like lefty journalist, you know, inspires Max Blumenthal, inspires anti-Semite to kill Jews. Um, and so that was just shocking. And like, uh, you know, on Twitter, like immediately I and several other people were just like, what, what the hell is wrong with you? Like these claims are completely unsubstantiated. Like they're all lies. Uh, there was plenty of disgust at this website, you know, about Max Blumenthal. Uh, you know, there's no way, he, you know, it, it was just, it's a smear and it was just really bizarre to see it recycled by a supposedly liberal outlet. Um, so, but like after a lot of, you know, backlash, they took it down like an hour later. Uh, but that's the story. That's that's the story that's kind of consumed my week because it was just really like outrageous and upsetting to see, uh, someone who's not only a friend of mine, but like, who's like a really brilliant journalist who's done so much work on like covering white supremacists and the hardcore white or like right wing to see him get slandered like that was just like really shocking, uh, mostly because no one defended him. But I don't know if you have anything to add to that or to comment on on that poll. I just I was in this really odd position because I kept seeing a lot of stuff that he was being nailed with. On Twitter, but I guess I don't know. In in reading a lot of different postings on the internet on on a daily basis, I just I didn't see anybody really addressing it that I thought you know like the people who generally can lend credibility to it. I, I feel like at least for Max's sake, it did stay to the fringe, um, isolated, and that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of noise and that echo chamber doesn't work but i just sort of feel like to some extent 
maybe he could be happy that liberals didn't respond because maybe it means that they weren't hearing the echo. I don't know. I'm trying to be positive here. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I guess. I don't know. I just thought it was really coward. I mean, not that I think that they would have. I mean, who who, who of them do we actually think would uh, defend them, defend Max? I mean, it's the same reason why I wouldn't expect um, a whole bunch of liberals to not hedge when they were doing a defense of someone like Glenn Greenwald. But uh, at the same time, I just sort of, I do have to say that if if it can give him any peace of mind, I am engaged with a lot of the same people that I think, you know, you both engage with. And I didn't see them really interested. And it, it seemed to, there seemed to be this sort of like polarizing discussion that happened where they were trying to balance this out between him and Ion Hirsi Ali in trying to like talk about uh, whether psychopaths are responsible, or, or sorry, whether writers are responsible for the actions of psychopaths. Right. No. And I mean, then that 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 was where they were trying to take it. Um, like, and I I get that. I get that. Like, obviously, but I was just like, I just found it more, you know, interesting that I I, I felt from what I was seeing, it seemed like had this been about anything other than Israel. Uh, people would not have hesitated to be like, ah, oh, this is stupid. These people are crazy. Uh, and I mean, like, people on, uh, you know, like, people, you know, at Salon or people, I mean, just, like, the liberal outlets that, you know, even MSNBC, like, it was just, especially because Rush Limbaugh went after him. That's what I was, like, it was one thing when it was just sort of, like, these fringe magazines and outlets. That, but Rush Limbaugh has this huge following that, like, whenever he says something crazy, um, people on the left are like crazy Rush Limbaugh. Like they're happy to like be like, he's crazy. And the fact mm -hmm. that nobody chimed in on that just tells me that like, that they just weren't interested in this because it was too, it felt too sensitive because, you know. Well, well, how about this? I'll, I'll give you this. Why didn't Media Matters at least give us a post right. about the, you know, just dissecting the facts of the situation? Right, Exactly. Anyways, on a lighter note, though, while we're on the subject of um, of uh, right-wingers, I just wanted to point out, and we don't have to talk about this for too long, but I just uh, something that really uh, caught my eye this week were a couple of things that happened. One of them was that Oklahoma banned cities from raising their own minimum wage above the state's level. <laughs> <laughs> that happened. Uh, so, yeah, state I mean, rights, but no city rights, I guess. I don't know how you... It definitely sounds illegal, but uh, I am not a lawyer. I just sort of am reacting as someone who believes that the minimum wage shouldn't be uh, abolished. Yeah, that, that that sounds like a good idea to not abolish the already very low minimum wage. Uh, and now apparently a bunch of like conservatives are lining up uh, to you know, get behind the attack on the minimum wage because, you know, that's that's what being a conservative is. It's kind of sad, man. It's like, wow. Like, you're really going to win over a lot of people. Uh, and another thing, that another crazy thing, and you can tell me what you think of this. Here's the headline. This is from Think Progress. Um, Prominent Republican says, women need to be paid less so they can find husbands. <laughs> Oh God! This was an argument against the uh, against equal pay uh, by this uh, crazy right wing lady uh, named. Uh, this is coming from a lady. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Yeah! This is definitely coming from a lady. This was an attempt 
to appeal to women voters. Um, it says an op-ed published by the Christian Post, uh, in an op-ed published by the Christian Post, Phyllis Shafley, the founder oh, of, the, God. of the Eagle Forum, uh, said the following, um, Suppose the pay gap between men and women were magically eliminated. If that happened, simple arithmetic suggests that half of women would be unable to find what they regard as a suitable mate. Uh, the best way to improve economic prospects for women is to improve job prospects for the men in their lives, even if that means increasing the so-called pay gap. So that happened. And I got to say, like, my eyes have been opened. Um, I think the GOP really gets me. Uh, and I absolutely 100% agree. And in fact, I'm going to ask for a pay reduction um, next time I have a job that actually pays an income. Uh, <laughs> I think you need to take up arms as an anti-feminist. Uh, and obviously, you should go make uh, make another man feel secure in his being by not being paid more than he is. Right. It totally makes sense when you explain it that way, too. But yeah, so Republicans and conservatives appealing to people who hate women and poor and, and, and hate the poor. Well, this is actually by someone who has a very long history of putting out this sort of yeah. uh, <laughs> material, and we won't go into her. It's not no, worth it. No, I just thought that was kind of funny. Um, so something that you wanted to talk about, which I want to hear about, uh, is Edward Snowden did something kind of cool again. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's cool. Uh, he's he's getting a lot of shit from people who typically do not like him. So just to be brief about establishing what is the you know the piece that we're discussing here is that there's apparently an annual sort of call-in program that happens on Russian state TV, and Vladimir Putin sits there. And there's a moderator that accepts the questions, and they come from people who are in Russia uh, asking the president questions. Uh, and Edward Snowden submitted a video question, and he wanted to know that. I won't read you how he built up the question, but essentially he said, I've seen little public discussion of Russia's own involvement in the policies of mass surveillance. So I'd like to ask you, does Russia intercept, store, or analyze in any way? the communications of millions of individuals, and do you believe that simply increasing the effectiveness of intelligence or law enforcement investigations can justify placing societies rather than subjects under surveillance? And then Putin had an answer, but I do have to say for the purposes of people who think that this question serves some sort of like propaganda purpose, that he was just trying to make it easy for Putin to deny surveillance and then it was going to be over and said and done with, that there is, if you watch the clip, it's kind of funny because the two people don't understand the English that Snowden is speaking and they're trying to figure out how to process the question so that it can then be asked of uh, Putin so he can respond. It's, uh, so if it was staged, someone screwed up. Uh, and uh, so the, what's getting a lot of attention is that Putin said, uh, Mr. Snowden, you are a former agent, a spy. I used to be working for an intelligence service. We're going to talk one professional language. So spy to spy, basically. Mm. So that's gotten a lot of attention because people think, you know, the propaganda of him being under the influence of the Russian foreign intelligence service. So 
now they're like, oh, he's talking to a spy, spy to spy. So anyways, he goes on, and I think what really stands out, and uh, it didn't take long for some people to make this point, is that his answer generically sounds very similar to what President Barack Obama has said about our own surveillance. Uh, this is The kind of denial was the kind of denial that we've grown to expect in the initial stage of, uh, of Snowden's disclosures. That's what we were getting. And then now, I guess, finally, you know, by Snowden making this a question in society in Russia— they might be starting some kind of a debate there. And it started now with Putin's denial. And he essentially said, uh, 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 we do not have a mass scale uncontrollable efforts. Uh, you, uh, there are special forces that can use some uh, equipment to intercept phone calls, but you, uh, I like this line, and you have to get a court permission to stalk a particular person. Uh, so stalking's legal in uh, the foreign surveillance of Russia, but <laughs> at least <laughs> um, so, this is a translation. So that's why it probably came out funny like that, where they're using the word stalk. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, he claimed there's no mass inter system of interception and that law is followed and uh, everything. He said, our special service, thanks God, are strictly controlled by the society and by the law and are regulated by the law. Now, I mean, you, know, like you can react. This is sort of what we were hearing from Obama in June and July. I was going to say, it sounds like something a typical, you know, a typical leader would say. Yeah. Denial. Okay, and the other thing is, uh, don't automatically assume that Soden was accepted, accepting of this answer because he submitted a video. There wasn't any opportunity for him to react to Putin. So mm -hmm. as of now, uh, people can't go around pretending like, you know, this was some sort of like staged play and uh, he's all good with it. Uh, we don't know. I haven't heard. If somebody wants to do their job as a journalist and follow up and find out what he thinks of Putin's answer, and if he decides to comment, uh, maybe he will. But what I can uh, can tell you is that it's really amazing because uh, an ABC News reporter immediately asked, uh, reacted. His name's Terry Moran. He's like a chief foreign correspondent. And he said, Snowden asks if Russia intercepts personal data of ordinary citizens. Really, Snowden? Do you really expect a straight answer? And it's like... Okay, so don't even ask? Yeah, and it's people really were convinced that Snowden should just have not even bothered with doing this at all. Now, okay, sorry, I've been following this from the beginning since June. You have not made me forget the reality that you all were complaining that he was silent about Russia's surveillance and only talking about U.S. surveillance while he's in Russia. Now he submits a video question and he asks Putin, and now he's a propaganda tool because he asked Putin a question. I mean, like, seriously, I don't even, my my head's spinning. I don't know how to deal with this. Oh my god! Holy god! I don't even know how to like wrap my my brain around that kind of mentality. It's just like you hate Edward Snowden. I, the only thing, and and I guess uh, there's probably more that could be said, but straight to the point. Uh, someone who I've um, gotten to know fairly well. Um, his name's Thomas Drake. He's an NSA whistleblower. And he, he, he was before Snowden. One of the things that he's talked about from experience is that when you are a whistleblower, the thing that everyone wants to talk about is just you. The focus is the person. The focus is the messenger. And he's basically said that anything that can be found to put a whistleblower in a negative light will be amplified because the interest is to keep questioning that whistleblower's integrity. The goal is to question motives and intentions. It's actually about 
uh, you know, fundamentally who that whistleblower happens to be, and if there's any reason why that whistleblower might be unstable, or if he's susceptible to a nefarious influence, or you know, if they don't fit what's normal in society, that's what it's about. So, it, I guess what I'm telling people is, this should be your warning that there there is a huge section of people who get an audience in journalism, and uh, they. Uh, sometimes their views are coming out in what they're publishing. Sometimes their views are coming out when they're just on social media and talking and in the process of doing their work. But uh, they are never, ever going to be convinced that Snowden is doing anything uh, appropriate because they just don't they don't believe in what he did. They don't like what he did. And their commitment is always going to be to finding something about him that they don't like. Right. No, exactly. Exactly. That's that's pretty much it. It's like that. That's why no matter what happens, no matter what he does, I mean, Edward Snowden could literally save a baby from a burning building. He could save 500 babies from a burning building. And like they would fi- they would somehow find a way to say, no, no. I mean, he was doing it for Russia. he was saving he was saving like he was saying they weren't actual babies i don't know they would find a way (laughs) it's it's like glenn greenwald tweeted uh snowden should storm the kremlin take their surveillance docks and demand to be sent to the u.s just like his brave patriotic critics would do (laughs) exactly so i mean and even after that there would still be something that they didn't like just because this is their commitment is to never ever finding a reason to be okay with what uh, he did and revealing what we can now say was in the public interest uh, because uh, the Pulitzer Prize was given to Washington Post and Guardian for publishing his uh, leaks, for publishing the information from the documents, and they called it public interest journalism. And so I say— to you that if uh, that was in the public interest, then I don't have a problem with making the leap that his uh, revealing the information was in the public interest too. Yeah, that's, I agree with you. That makes sense. (laughs) Um, So that was kind of all the topics that we were sort of planning on covering. I mean, today's a much lighter episode, but I mean, is there anything else? Um, I mean, I, what are your thoughts on Vox Media? That's kind of been on my mind that we haven't really talked about. I'm really excited about Vox. I mean, if you're not familiar, it's a wonderful new outlet that um, GE, uh, wonderful General Electric, God, it's such a lovely company, um, has uh, is like a sponsor of uh, Vox Media started by Ezra, you know, good friend of the show, Ezra Klein, um, and uh, another good friend of the show, uh, uh, Maddie Glacius and, and several under really, really great, awful hack journalists um, that we love and adore. Uh, and the site is devoted to explaining the news to us. Um, uh, sure. Like, uh, like uh, this story coming out as a porn star. Yeah. that. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. I like I've had that bookmarked. I'm really excited to to read that. Uh, I oh. believe there was a, another really excellent, uh, hard hitting uh, investigative piece. I have it. Um, I have the title in front of me. It's called, um, the more attractive you think you are, the more likely you are to be okay with economic inequality. I, I was really taken in by is Easter about Jesus or bunnies. Oh both. my God. Both okay, action, don't, don't, both spoil don't spoil it. Don't spoil it. The spoiler is in the headline. 
Um, but yeah, there's like a lot of, I mean, the real historical event that inspired this week's huge Game of Thrones twist. Uh, that's there's, gotta be. There, there's the dubious science of beards. <laughs> So this website uh, is interesting. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Like, they've had some, I mean, they, they do have some good headlines, and I haven't really read their stories. Um, but it's devoted to explaining the news, which already pisses me off. Well, it's because, patronizing. Yeah, it is. <laughs> like, and I mean, there's just all these articles. Like, there's what, everything you need to know about gerrymandering. It's like the titles, just everything about it is like, you're stupid. Let me explain it to you. Um, so yeah, that looks annoying and obnoxious and kind of sort of, I mean, it's just sort of interesting, like these new media ventures that are getting all this attention, um, when really it's just like mainstream people like recycling, you know, the same thing, the same wonk bullshit that they did at their former outlets, but like in new form and sponsored by a big, massive corporation that doesn't pay any taxes, but actually I believe pays negative taxes. I, well, I think that this is like a never-ending Aspen Ideas of Festival, which is sort of horrific to me because whenever those people get together, it's just a, a bunch of wonks uh, stroking government officials and spending some time in the mountains. And it doesn't really ever get to the substance of what is the actual issue. You know, you're never going to get to the core of what they're actually talking about. There's just scratching the surface barely. Um, and apparently their tagline is Vox explains everything you need to know in two minutes. Oh, um, I mean, I'm they, pretty they, sure they, I read an article or I tried to read an article by Ezra Klein and it was like a thousand pages long. It was really long, and and when you get to the end there, after this like really long, drawn out, they're trying to get down to it. It's like they make it uninteresting. Up. They actually make yeah. some, they make interesting topics so boring that you're like, oh my god, I don't care anymore. Yeah, and then they get to the end, and it'll be a, uh, something like maybe we should listen to each other when we're having conversations, and you're like, okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of anonymous officials, uh, I, I just, I, I forgot that I wanted to mention this to you. Um, why not mention it on our show? Uh, it was an article by our, our other really great friend, Eli Lake. Um, it was about, it was literally like, hang on, I have to, I have to find it because it's so, uh, here we go. It's a, it's like an interview with the CIA director. Okay. So here's here's what the CIA director was really doing in Kiev or Kiev. I'm sorry, Kiev. I, I haven't actually heard it said, but I'm assuming it's Kiev. Yes. Wait, is that a story today? No, this was um from a couple of days ago. It was co-written by Eli Lake and Josh Rogan, who, by the way, Josh Rogan, which is a reporter at the Daily Beast, uh, did a Q and A with an with the ambassador of Iraq yesterday, like on Twitter, um, and asked him questions like, "What kind of weapons should the U.S. give you?" I just thought, I thought I'd throw that out there. Since, was he you know, paid by the I don't ambassador know, to have this Twitter conversation? That was literally one of the questions was like along yeah, the my, lines of what, yeah, like what, what, what do you need? My public service announcement to everyone who's listening to this podcast this week is that you should probably start asking. Right, let me back up. As a defense mechanism for taking in material that 
isn't straight up propaganda, you probably should look at the author of the piece and maybe take some time on Twitter to ask that person before you read that article if they were pitched by a government official to write that story and if that's how it ended up being written, especially if it's about a foreign policy issue. I don't know if you wrote a story about it, um, but you're absolutely right. And I just I wanted to point out, like, because I just, I don't want to um, misrepresent what he asked. Um, so he asked questions like, "Well, welcome to our Twitter to wait, our Twitter Q and A with a Rocks ambassador to Washington." Uh, that's his his name is Lookman Lookman Faley Faley. I don't I don't know how to pronounce that. Um, and then he had it, he had a hashtag ask a rock. And then he goes on to ask, um, so what does this say about the delicate security situation? Wait, wait, hold on. And he goes, was there specific intelligence? Yada, yada. Oh, how much territory in Iraq does Al Qaeda currently control? <laughs> um, now he's, he is like, he's quoting someone else's question because he was like, if you have questions for the ambassador, tweet with this hashtag and I'll ask him. But the fact that he picked that question to ask, how much territory in Iraq does Al Qaeda control? Um, and then he goes, as a follow up, what does Iraq currently seek from the U.S. to fight Al Qaeda in Anbar? Um, and I mean, me and uh, Kevin and I, if you go back to an episode we did a few weeks ago, we interviewed, uh, Dar Jamal, uh, who is a wonderful reporter for Truth Out Now, who had written about how the Iraqi government was actually killing civilians, uh, in its fight against Al Qaeda, uh, or supposedly against Al Qaeda, uh, using U.S. weapons to like slaughter civilians. So I was just, I, you know, I wish I had seen this when it was happening. I didn't see it until later in the day, but I eventually... I eventually, after this Q&A was over, was like, it's a shame no one asked uh, whether or not Iraq is killing civilians in Fallujah. Um, but I didn't get a response back. But yeah, I just thought that was really interesting. Um, seems to be a thing with Daily Beast reporters. So as we as we wrap up, uh, you might remember that one of our earlier episodes, we talked about how one of our favorite uh, journo death matches could possibly be Joshua Faust versus Eli Lake. Are you sure? Yeah. That is true. That I, I want to update you on this continuing uh, match match to the death. I believe that, that they will both uh, be plunged into ruin as they continue to <laughs> spar with each other. It can only mean the end of both of their careers, and that's actually a plus for <laughs> the journalism community. And so Eli Lake has tweeted... Joshua Faust criticizing your journalism is like Charles Manson telling you need to be a better neighbor. No way. Oh, my God. Oh, I almost want to retweet that. Oh, oh, my God. Joshua Faust. Everyone, Joshua Faust responded. I love your passion. Oh, he actually, he typoed. I love you passion, Eli. (laughs) Oh, that's fun. I hope they eat each other. Alive. (laughs) So thank you for tuning in. Uh, I'm actually talking to everyone for this episode from New York City. I'm going to get to see some great films at the Tribeca Film Festival, and maybe I'll mention what I thought about a couple of them. I'm only seeing two films. Maybe I'll talk about them on the next podcast. Cool. Sounds like a plan. All right. Thanks for tuning in, you guys. We'll see you. We'll see you. I'm sorry. We're a podcast. We'll talk to you next week. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) 